Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. Is love too strong of a word for your adoration of the, the Blade Runner franchise? Probably not. Blade Runner is easily my favorite movie. I have watched that movie so many times. So, no, I, I don't think love is, is too strong a word for that. Given your love for the, the Blade Runner franchise, what do you think of the, the one-hour watch series on, on Blade Runner this month that, that Lee's been up to? Yeah, for, for people who aren't maybe f- aware, although I don't know how you could miss it, if you're on the internet, you've probably seen some sort of meme go by that uh, November 2019 is when the original Blade Runner takes place. So we're, we're currently living in the future as far as uh, Blade Runner is concerned. Uh, so Lee, who we've discussed before, does uh, the one-hour watch. These are sketches that he does in uh, an hour or less, and he posts them on his uh, Instagram feed. And he's decided to use Blade Runner as his inspiration for this month's uh, watches, or most of this month's watches, I think. Uh, so he's already done a bunch of them. And uh, I'm a huge fan of what uh, what he's been doing with some of them. Uh, if you're familiar with the movie, he's uh, he's got some nice little tie-ins to the movie with uh, uh, there's a little spinner in one of them, the uh, the flying cars that uh, that are in the movie. There's uh, one with the the owl on the dial, um, and uh, a few others that are uh, that are iconic of the film. So yeah, I'm uh, I'm really loving what he's doing. Particularly like the tank that he did a couple of days ago with the red dial on it. It's uh, giving me some ideas for a, a future watch and certainly for a future dial that I want to try out. So, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of what he's doing with that. Will your rendition also be inspired by Blade Runner? I don't know. It's uh, I, I like some of what he's done with it. I like some of his um, some of his design choices for it. Uh, the font choice is inter- interesting and the way that he's uh, decided to choose uh, which numbers to show on the dial uh, it's a little bit of an odd rendering. He's got the uh, the ten, the two, the four, and the seven uh, represented the on the eight. dial, as opposed to the. Oh, sorry, you're right. The eight. Uh, he's chosen a few different numbers to represent on the dial, so that's uh, a sort of interesting. And I something that I want to play around with is a bit as well as um, maybe a few less traditional ways of of showing what's on a dial. That's one thing that really is lovely about Lee's work is just the the way in which he is able to, to play around with, with various designs. Drawing one watch every day, there's certainly plenty of room for, for creativity and, and different styles to, to pop up. And it's quite impressive, the breadth that, that he's been able to, to span, coming up on close to 2,000 watches now that, that he's dreamt up. Yeah, he's uh, he has a lot of advantages with what he's doing. Obviously, the the restrictions that he's placed on himself make it a lot easier in some ways. The fact that he can only spend an hour doing it makes a uh, makes him think harder about what he's doing, and and it's the same with any any artistic uh, rendering or or any design. The, the second that you have a a constraint, it actually helps you quite a bit. And then on top of that, he the fact that it really costs him nothing to produce this. Right, he doesn't have to sit there and actually prototype this watch and then figure out okay is this going to work properly he doesn't have to figure out how the how the parts are going to be made or even if the parts can be made uh, so certainly some of the watches i've seen him do uh, might be a little challenging to actually produce if he wanted to do them as a uh, you know as a production watch but uh, the fact that he's rendering it on paper means that he doesn't care uh, he, so it allows him to experiment with some design ideas that you know most people wouldn't necessarily uh, consider uh, in reality like 
do you like our owl this uh, little patek philippe here that uh that he's done with uh with the owl on it i mean who knows how that's rendered right uh, is it a is it an enamel is it a uh, you know a print of some sort like what is it that he's doing it doesn't matter uh, when it comes to his design because that's you know that's not important to what he's doing here and uh that gives him a, a little bit of uh a little bit of freedom to do things that uh maybe I wouldn't consider doing because uh, the first thing that I think about when I look at that is, all right, how would I make that? How is this practical? Is it something that I could actually do? So yeah, he's, uh, he's able to create some interesting things here that, uh, I certainly wouldn't think of just because he's got that freedom in uh, the medium that he's chosen. To Lee's credit, I think it does him a a disservice to say that that he he doesn't have to care uh, about what, what goes into it. I, I know that he he actually does put quite a bit of of thought into even going so far as the mechanics behind how a watch would actually be made and and would run. Uh, So he is very thoughtful uh, about those aspects as well. And he's not just pulling stuff out of the blue. And and with that owl piece, for instance, he has laid out that this would be rendered in in cloisonne enamel. And when you look at the way he's he's laid it out, you can see how he has put thought into ways to, to close off the the various colors from one another so that this could actually be executed in the enclosure. And when I say he doesn't he doesn't care, I'm not saying that he he doesn't on all of his pieces, but there certainly are some pieces there that uh, that are entirely impractical, and there is no way that you could manufacture them. Uh, and that doesn't matter for what he's doing. Uh, obviously, a lot of the pieces that he's making they they would be perfectly usable the way they are, and he would be able to uh, to render them the way they are. Uh, or if somebody would be able to make them and turn them into a real watch piece, but uh, there there have been a few in here that uh, that he doesn't need to uh, to be able to produce, and uh, and that gives him gives him some flexibility that uh, that he wouldn't have otherwise. And same thing when it comes to producing something in large numbers, uh, you know, if you if you only want to produce one of something and you have an infinite amount of time to produce something physical in a one off piece, then you know it doesn't really matter what it is. You can figure it out and you can. You can spend a ridiculous amount of time making something, but if you want to do something in series, then certainly some of the some of the things are impractical. Uh, like for instance, he's got one here a while back, which is a uh, an ice cream sandwich that uh, that he produces a watch. Now, obviously, that's not practical, but it's a it's a great rendering of a uh, sort of a tank watch, uh, but done as an ice cream sandwich. So that, that's you know that's the sort of thing when I say that he doesn't have to care about the actual practical nature of uh, what he's designing. Although those are the more the, the purposefully whimsical pieces. Absolutely. No, absolutely. And that's and that's what makes this great. So do you have a, a particular favorite of the, the Blade Runner series thus far? I think that tank with the red dial on it is probably my favorite so far. That's uh that's the one that uh, certainly gets me gets me thinking the most about uh about an, an actual watch design and how I would uh, how I would render that or how I would change it to make it my own watch uh, and gives me some gives me some ideas for something that I would do in the future like this is obviously a smaller watch than I would probably design um so I would I would probably make something that's a little bit bigger than this uh and I might change the proportions a little bit but I I like the the overall shape and look of it and I as I said I the thing that attracts me the most about this is the dial uh, I really like the alternate rendering of the numbers and I love the texture and the color that he's chosen there uh, so one of the first things I thought of when I saw that was how would I render that in a beautiful red like that with an interesting texture that's not uh, a regular pattern 
but still has some um some regularity to it uh so he's used um hatching in uh different directions uh but they're sort of they're grouped the hatching is grouped together so it it leads to an interesting sort of randomness to the pattern which would be challenging to figure out a good way of making so it got me thinking about um about how i would do it and i would probably do it in an enamel of some sort although red enamels are miserable to try and uh, use so it would be uh it would be an interesting challenge to make that uh, dial i've seen blade runner only once and i've seen the follow-up as well uh but i uh I can't say that it resonated as strongly with me as I know it has with you. With you. So pardon my, my ignorance. This this particular watch, uh, Lee says, was, was made for, for Gap or, or inspired by Gap. Who is Gap? What, what is the context here? I'm trying to figure out where I would see this in, in the film. Uh, Gaff is the character who is played by Edward James Olmos. And he's the detective who... Uh, initially is the one who arrests Deckard while Deckard is sitting at the the noodle stand eating his noodles and uh, Gaff comes up behind him and arrests him and drags him into the um, uh, the police station so that he could get uh, reinstated as a Blade Runner and he shows up a number of times he's sort of a a recurring um, not really a narrator but he's sort of helping move the move the characters around and move the plot along in, in certain ways and he's He's the one who does all the the little origami pieces in the uh, in the movie. So when you see the you know the little unicorn and stuff like that, that's that's Gaff's character who's uh, who's doing that. Uh, so this is the this is the sort of piece that would be on his wrist. And if you look at some of the scenes with Bryant, who's the I guess lieutenant or captain or whoever it is that's uh, in charge of the Blade Runner unit, uh, the one who sort of drags Deckard in and drags him out of retirement. Uh, he has an interesting watch on his wrist, which is actually a double watch. And I believe it is uh, made from two standard digital watches that were actually cut up and sort of reassembled into a sort of a double watch on his wrist. So there's a, a few few interesting designs that uh, this reminds me of from, uh, from that as well. But uh, yeah, there's a couple of interesting things that were done with watches in the movie. Uh, obviously, little subtle cues, but the nice thing about the Blade Runner world that was created is that everything down to the stickers that showed you when you could park on the street were all accurately rendered on set. And so if you walked into that world and you walked up to, you know, a a phone box and you looked at the phone, you know, the phone itself, you would see things like the charge, you know, the, the the little sheet that tells you what the charges are for the, sh- you know, for making a phone call. Even though never are you going to see that on screen, um, there were a lot of incredible details that were put into that film, and uh, things like these watches, which you'll never see on screen for more than just a flash, uh, were things that they actually built and and put a lot of time and effort into. So that's one of the things that I that I always appreciated about the movie was that they did create this entire world that is was purposeful and uh, cohesive and um, incredibly detailed, uh, even things that you'll never, ever see on screen. I don't recall seeing that that particular watch in the movie. Usually watches jump out at me and, and stick with me in films, but I don't, don't recall that, that particular one. Yeah, the one on Brian's wrist, you wouldn't, um, you wouldn't have seen very quickly, but 
It was, uh, you know what, I bet you, I think Matt actually posted a photo of it. Very, very grainy screen cap. So not, not surprised I didn't notice it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, and that's what I mean when, when you look at this, it's not, it's not the sort of thing that you'll, you'll probably see. As you said, even if you're a watch guy, it's not the sort of thing you'll probably see because it's on screen for, you know, 10 frames or whatever. Uh, and it's certainly not the focus of what you're seeing, but, uh, it's, it's an interesting idea and, uh, the way they've, they've created it. It's, it's the sort of thing you could see somebody in 1981 when they're making this film, it's the kind of thing that somebody would think of as being a digital watch from 2019. And, uh, and I think it, it fits perfectly with this, the world that they created and uh, the sort of the future vision of what they were what they were looking for going back to if you were to to make a a watch like this particular one uh, what technique would you employ to or do you think you would employ to to do that sort of of texturing on the the dial itself under the enamel i would presume you're not going to try and do that texturing in the enamel itself no you wouldn't do it in the enamel itself and in fact we'll talk about that a little bit in one of the the watches we're going to talk about later on when we uh, talk about the only watch auction so this is something that uh, there's a few different ways that you can do it uh there are various um sort of wire brushes that you can use on a rotary attachment like a, a flex shaft kind of attachment and uh, there's a couple of different ways that you can do it you can do it using uh, a few different hammering techniques where you use a textured hammer and you can uh, you can create this sort of uh, crosshatch pattern that's that's there uh, you could do it the the good old-fashioned way with a hand graver and and just sort of do it uh, do it by hand although that would be pretty laborious and, and time consuming to do so there's there are a few different ways that you could do it I would have to experiment to see which ones looked best and what I was happiest with. But um, there, there's certainly a couple of different ways that you could do it. I think if I was going to make a series of these watches, I would actually make a die uh, out of a piece of steel with that texture, and I would use a press and press that texture into the metal. If I was going to do more than you know maybe one or two of these watches, I would do it that way. And then you'd need a clear layer, a very thin clear layer of enamel over top of it, to protect the red enamel from the silver and then throw on the, um, the red enamel over top of that uh, so that you get that, uh, that beautiful color. That's an interesting touch. Yeah, you mentioned there that red enamels tend to be challenging to, to work with. What is the, the reason for that? Mm-hmm. Is it just the, the chemical reaction that's occurring there within the glass? Yeah. If you remember last episode, we were talking a little bit about the the way that enamels work and the fact that it's an oxidation process with the the oxides that are in the uh, the enamel and any of the warm colors uh, react very poorly with silver and so whether you're talking about a pink a red uh, even browns they they don't react very well with the silver and so you end up getting a very muddy look often they turn brown so you'll get this beautiful pink for instance and it will turn brown anywhere that it's exposed to the silver. Uh, They work fine if you're dealing with them on gold. They work fine if you're dealing with them on copper, although with both copper and gold, because they are colored metals, you're going to affect the the tone and the warmth of that enamel just because the, you know, if you're dealing with copper, for instance, you're going to get a copper color coming through that that pink, let's say. Uh, Same thing with gold. If you use uh, a pink enamel on top of gold, you're going to get that 
sort of gold gold warmth coming through the the pink enamel. Uh, in the case of silver, if you want to use uh, a warm colored enamel on silver, then there are a couple of different ways that you can go about uh, protecting yourself from it. Uh, the easiest way of doing it is to put down either clear flux underneath it, like a clear layer of, of enamel. Uh, although, unfortunately, a lot of the clear enamels are a different hardness, and often they have a different uh, coefficient of expansion from the the colored enamel that's on top of it. So the other way you can do it is you can take something like a very, very, very pale blue, which won't react at all to the silver in a poor way, but at a very thin layer will be effectively clear. And then you can put a red over top of that or a pink over top of that. And because it's such a thin, pale color of blue, it won't affect the uh, the color that's on top of it. So the red or the pink or the, the brown or whatever it is that you've chosen on top of it. So would you have selected silver in this case just to, to stick with your your branding silver hands instead of going with a, a gold in the way that this is, is presented here by by lee i would probably do the case in gold uh but i'd probably do the base metal for the dial in silver um i might do it in gold just to try it out and see how the the red reacts to it i don't know that i've seen a lot of red over gold enamel so i don't know how it would affect the color i have seen a lot of pink over gold so for instance if you look at a lot of the fabergé pieces that are that have a very nice pink enamel over top of them many of those were actually done over gold they weren't done over uh, silver and you can see that you get this beautiful warmth coming through and because it's all engine turned as well you end up seeing some interesting color shifts because you get that gold color coming through more or less uh, through the pink so uh, i would i'd have to see if the red looked right on the gold and if it was the right the right red for what i was looking for uh but i tend to do a, most of my enamel work on silver so that's uh that's what i would prefer and then i would do the case itself in gold and the numbers in gold and you would never realize that there was uh, silver necessarily underneath that uh, that enamel uh, it would you know it wouldn't be obvious to you that it was silver now you alluded to a particular only watch dial that bears a, a similar aesthetic I presume that the watch uh, you had in mind was the one by Recep Recepi that we, we had mentioned last episode. It's been a, a busy couple of weeks in the, the world of horology with the, the GPHG and, and the only watch auction. What did you think of the, the results that the Recep's piece fetched at the only watch auction? Well, I have to say I was impressed with uh, with some of the prices that people were uh, paying for some of these watches at the only watch uh, auction, uh, unbelievable amounts of money being spent on these watches. And that's great. It was going to a great cause. Um, for those who don't know, it's a, an auction, uh, Christie's who hold the auction, they don't take any money from it. And the people who make the watches, the, the manufacturers, they don't take any money from it. Uh, all of it's going straight to their charity, which is for, um, muscular dystrophy research. Uh, and the piece that Recep Recepi uh, put in this time around was a um, chronometre contemporain. There you go. But he did a unique dial for it. Uh, so this has a hammered texture. It's a silver dial with a hammered texture and then a beautiful dark blue enamel that's done over top of it. And then he's pad printed the text in white over top of the uh, the dark blue enamel. And so the way that this is done is similar to how I was suggesting I would do the uh, watch that Lee rendered. Uh, in this case, instead of using a, a rotary tool, 
he's using a, a hammer texture so he's using a fine point and on a on the end of a an awl or something like that and he's using a, a light hammer tap and he's just going along and texturing the entire piece of metal underneath it uh, and that gets this sort of um, pebbled look that's on the watch and then once he's done that he can enamel the dial so it's just a standard enamel process at that point applying multiple thin layers of enamel in the color that you want uh, grinding it down so that it's flat afterwards uh, obviously there's going to be some kind of counter enamel on the back to prevent it from warping uh, when it's uh, when it's cooling and then once the enamel is all finished and everything's polished and it looks great uh, it looks like he's coming along afterwards with a white pad printer ink and printing on this afterwards just using a standard a standard pad printing technique uh, and the end result is spectacular it looks great uh, i've seen a couple of videos of it with it moving around as well and uh, it looks great even even when it's in motion it's um, sometimes these these weird dials you know these unique dials don't look very good outside of the still photograph that somebody has very carefully taken a you know of, of the particular piece but in this case uh, even in real life the uh, the the dial looks like it's uh, it holds up and it it looks quite nice mm-hmm. this is really is a, a stunning piece on, on both sides uh, the movement more so for me but uh, the, the dial is really quite lovely and uh, appeals to me more than than some of the earlier takes on on this particular piece by Rajap. Yeah, that's one of the nice things about Rajap's work is that it it holds up both from an aesthetic point of view as well as from a technical point of view. And I agree that the movement side of this is just as spectacular. In fact, the aesthetics of the movement are spectacular as well. And from a technical point of view, the way that he's designed it and the look of it, the the function of it, it's it's a great little watch and I, I'm I'm super impressed with what he's done here. And in fact, that's one of the things that's always attracted me about his stuff is that he's he's able to pull off not only the technical aspects of it, which again, a lot of a lot of companies do really amazing technical feats in their watches, but the design, the aesthetics of it is not that great. Uh, he's able to pull off both, and and uh, I'm impressed, particularly with this watch. It, this is a great looking watch. He managed to even out- outperform Richard Mille. At the auction, <laughs> yeah, but that Richard Mill wasn't a particularly exciting watch. It was uh, it, it, that was um, the same watch that they were making for the McLaren owners. Um, so the the original version of that watch you could only buy if you happened to buy the whatever four million dollar McLaren that went with it. Um, so the, this was a quote unquote cheap way of getting the watch, but I think that's one of the reasons why that watch didn't do well was because it wasn't really a particularly unique watch in this case. Yeah, not not an only watch in the the only watch sense where everything is is one of a kind. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But no, this uh, this watch performed really well. In fact, most of the watches in this uh, in this auction performed ridiculously well, including the the Patek that uh, blew everybody away in terms of uh, what it went for price wise, setting a new record for the most expensive wristwatch at auction. And just in case anyone had any doubt, they went so far as to write the only one on the dial of this piece. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just in case you were, uh, you were confused. It's uh, certainly a, a different watch. I, I don't think they've been, they've produced anything similar to this before, have they? Not exactly like this. Not nothing that I'm familiar with. So it's yeah. uh, amongst 
Patek Philippe collectors, I can I can understand why it went as stratospheric as it did, uh, but it was uh, really a, an incredible shootout there in the the auction room. Yeah, if for for those who who don't know, this one went for thirty one million Swiss francs, which I think almost doubled the most expensive wristwatch that uh, had gone at auction to date. Paul Newman Daytona has with a previous crown for a wristwatch. And then Patek, of course, held the previous crown for the most expensive watch sold at auction, which was a, a pocket watch, the, the Graves Super Complication a couple of years ago, which I can't remember the exact price, but off the top of my head, it was about $24 million US. Yeah, it was somewhere in the mid-20s, yeah. Yeah, it's it's impressive this one went for for 31 and I think obviously when when you're dealing with these charity auctions some of it is the fact that it's a unique watch that you know they want to be the one to collect that watch and have that watch. Part of it is because it's a charity auction, you know, people feel that they can spend a little bit more money on it, they're a little bit uh, looser with their pocketbook perhaps than uh, than they might be otherwise. So, I I don't think this is this represents sort of what what uh auctions are going to move towards in the near future but um pretty impressive anyways uh, you know we were, we were talking earlier about incredible technical feats and the impressiveness of of what people are doing technically and this watch is incredibly impressive technically and, and i'm hoping at some point somebody's going to do a technical breakdown of what this watch is doing and how it's designed and things like that it would be nice to see something about that uh, but I'm actually not that fond of the aesthetics of it. I don't really like this sort of pinkish copper dial that they have on here. Um, so that's the the one thing that disappoints me about this watch is I, I'm not really a big fan of the aesthetics of it. It's a salmon dial in Patek Philippe in stainless steel. It's a hard thing to come by. Uh, I, I get that. It's In fact, the, it's the only one. So by definition, it's extremely difficult to come by. Uh, you're not alone in, in not being particularly fond of the aesthetics of, of this particular piece. Uh, but in terms of, of technical achievements, uh, another standout for me was Bijon's piece for Only Watch, which is, to me, quite quite an impressive piece of horology coming out of the Bijon manufacturer. Uh, this actually is inspired somewhat by one of his, his earliest pocket watches, which in itself was inspired by the Space Traveler by George Daniels. And what what he's pulled off here is, is again, technically impressive. There's, there's a lot going on uh, under the hood here, and uh, a lot going on on the dials uh, as well, uh, so to speak. There's uh, quite a bit to keep track of there. Uh, the, the case material is something I'm personally quite fond of as well. I, I do like the look of, of tantalum. Uh, I also think that the choice of uh, strap is was quite bold as well. It's got a sort of an orange colored strap on it, uh, which works well, I think, in this case with the the blue of the dial and the, and the silver of the case. I think that it, it could have been very easy for that strap to not look good on this watch. I think it actually pulls it off here. So from an aesthetics point of view, uh, it's a bold watch, but I like the look of it. And then, as you said, from a technical point of view, it's a, a remarkable watch what he's uh, what he's done here, and again went for a very healthy price. I think it was 1.8 million francs what this went for, which is easily the most expensive FP Journe watch um, that's been sold at auction. So, yeah, it's an impressive watch what uh, what he's done with that. And the the bidders did not pull any punches. This uh, very quickly left oh, from no. its initial price to to 1.5 million. 
Yeah, it's it's interesting. If you've never watched one of these auctions, and and I I don't really follow the auctions very closely because I'm sadly I'm not in a position where I have 1.8 million francs or 31 million francs uh, to to look at buying watches. So they they don't particularly interest me. But uh, there there was some video of it. Uh, Marc Andre from Watches TV had a good video out today where he was uh, he was showing a little bit of the footage from the auction room when some of these watches were being uh, auctioned off and it's a it's an interesting atmosphere and watch as you said watching some of these things you know they'll start off at you know 400,000 francs or whatever and then all of a sudden somebody will just say 1.5 million and is like what the heck did you just do it's it's incredible how quickly the price goes from okay that's you know a, a lot of money to that is an astronomical sum of money mm-hmm. It's an interesting atmosphere when you watch it. I mean, contrasting it to the the Patek Philippe, it was, the Patek was, was leaping by by more than a couple of million and a few points there in, in the auction. Yeah, it, it almost got ridiculous. The you know the, the numbers that you're talking about were just it was it was one of those things where there were just completely surreal numbers that were uh, happening there. So that was uh, that was it was interesting to watch and uh, I. I can't, I, I would enjoy, I think I would enjoy being in the room for one of those auctions just once to see, you know, to sort of see it in person. But uh, it's certainly not uh, not the way that I would be interested in buying a watch. I don't think I could handle that. And as I said, my pocketbook certainly couldn't handle that. And some of the, the nice standout features on the, this FP Journal for me, uh, I'm, I'm a sucker for a minute repeater and a sunrise sunset complications. Mm. And, and he's pulled off both of those quite nicely on this piece. And another interesting touch on it is the, the moon phase display, which he's actually rendered on a piece of sapphire glass, which offers uh, an interesting bit of depth to the the way that the moon actually is displayed there within the dial of the watch. Uh, it really does look like it's just, just floating there when you, when you catch it at the right angle. I think this is another one of those watches where it's worth trying to find a video of this watch where somebody's actually moving it and you can see it from slightly different angles. I think sometimes these um, these highly touched up and um, you know photographs, marketing photographs of these pieces, I think do them a bit of a disservice at times uh, because they just appear to be too unreal and almost as if they're just a computer rendering. But seeing seeing this piece when it's sort of moving around and in the flesh is uh, it's it's quite nice, and I think it's even more impressive than the still photograph that you see of it on the on the site. In terms of actually seeing it in motion, you can actually see part of the manufacturing process. A video you sent me of Jean pad printing the the chapter rings for this unique piece. And actually, if I, if I recall correctly, when you, you sent me this video clip, you, you kind of harped on the fact that you think it's ridiculous that these manufacturers show these old school means of of doing <laughs> pad printing, of someone laying down the ink and then scraping off the excess and then... And, doing it all manually and how ridiculous that was for a manufacturer. To Jerome's credit, this was a, a one-off piece, so it is perfectly acceptable to to be pad printing in in that particular manner. Uh, so we'll be sure to link to that that video in the, the show notes for people to be able to see some of that depth and, and motion in action. I think you may be overselling what I was complaining about a little bit there, but the uh, it is it is funny watching these uh these marketing videos and in most cases the marketing videos are you know seeing some artist doing these um one-off pad printings on a dial and you know that it's for a watch that they're producing thousands of it's like there isn't somebody sitting there you know hand 
inking the plate and slowly printing each each of these dials when they're making a couple thousand of them. Uh, mo- you know, it's it's great in a marketing video, but in most cases they're they're not doing that for mass production. Obviously, in this case, it's a bit different because there is only the one. But yeah, it's uh, it is funny seeing some of these uh, these marketing pad printer videos. And uh, actually, speaking of pad printing and uh, dials, I meant to uh, give a little bit of follow up that uh, Hugh Beauchamp sent our way. Uh, Hugh is one of the students who was uh, in a couple of my watchmaking classes when I was over at the BHI last year. He was listening to the last episode, talking of uh, with the two of us talking about pad printing enamels on dials. And uh, of course, Marc Andre has a video on the Watches TV with you know somebody a dial manufacturer actually doing exactly what we were talking about and they're taking enamel dials and they're printing uh, an enamel onto the uh, the white base uh, for the text and then firing them again uh, so there's a there's a nice little video uh, showing that sort of traditional process and what people are doing now with it and uh, in fact I I did a quick bit of research and I noticed that Thompson enamel uh, they have an oil-based binder for painting with enamels. And they also have another one specifically designed for, uh, I think they call it squeegee work, which I have to assume is designed for using some sort of a um, a screen printing technique, which I assume would work just fine for doing pad printing. So uh, I'm going to have to uh, do a little bit of experimentation with that. We'll include a link to that video in the show notes. And uh, thanks, Hugh, for passing that along. I, I sh- Anytime I think about this sort of thing and uh, something that, that I know people have done in the watch world, I should just go to Mark Andre's channel and look for it because there's a really good chance that he's actually got a good video of it already. It, my hat's off to, to Mark Andre. It really is remarkable what he's he's done there with the watches TV. And uh, they have a an inside look at, at Kerry Votilinen's manufacturer that will be going live soon on, on YouTube and is available now to, to Patreon subscribers. Uh, but that'll be worth talking a bit about in a, a future episode as well. Now, as far as actual pad printing of enamel goes, I, I do know that Breguet has, has done it on a, a number of, of their pieces. And uh, w- one neat tidbit there is that they will actually go in and, and touch up by hand the, the serifs and then the tail ends on things, uh, just because uh, whatever enamel they're using doesn't capture that quite a, as cleanly uh, as what the Breguet is going for in, in the look uh, of its dials. So they, they do do some some very fine touch-up work by hand. Yeah, I'll, I'll be curious to see what happens with these dials when I start experimenting with it and just see how accurate I can render in it. Because, of course, you're going to have a number of different factors there. Everything from how does the enamel that you're, uh, the, the text enamel, how does that, uh, sink into the base enamel because it is going to sink into it a little bit and you're going to get a little bit of a bleed from from that as it sinks into the uh, the other enamel uh, so there's a couple of different factors there obviously there's there are going to be some limitations of it in terms of of just how fine and accurate a detail you can get uh, i do know that some of the old or all of the old pocket watches i should say that that use this they were all hand-painted dials and uh, some of those do have some very fine details on them so it is certainly possible to get some some fine detail. It's a question of how much I can transfer from the pad print technology and and see what I can get working properly and and how it'll look. So it'll be uh, certainly be interesting to to experiment with. I think it's uh, I think it has some promise in terms of uh, 
what you can do with it and and I think doing some things other than just text on uh, on dial as well I think that it's possible to do some interesting uh, illustration work and whatnot with it now as you alluded to earlier the other thing that's been going on in the watch world this week is the GPHG uh, the uh, Grand Prix horology uh, this was uh, one of the the big awards that happens in the industry, although it's a, a little bit weird because it doesn't include uh, a couple of large brands, including any of the LVMH uh, group or the Swatch group or Rolex. Uh, but this is a sort of juried uh, awards, uh, similar to, I guess, like the Oscars or something like that. And uh, there's some awards handed out for different um, different categories. Uh, we've already talked about a, a lot of the interesting watches that are in here. Uh, so we're, we're not going to go into very many of these. Uh, but uh, there are are a few interesting things in there that uh, that we wanted to sort of highlight that uh, that we had seen. Was there anything in particular that stood out for you in this um, in this group? I mean, there's certainly plenty that, that could be be talked about. One of the ones that, that stood out most for me was uh, Kudoke, uh, the Kudoke 2, which uh, we spoke a little bit about earlier this year quite admire what what he's been able to pull off here as an, an independent watchmaker and it was nice to see him recognized uh, at the the GPHG and uh take away one of the the, the prizes there for the the, the petite aiguille which is essentially this the small hand and then the the biggest prize being of course the golden hand yeah i particularly like what he's doing with his designs i think they're nice uh, clean contemporary look and um, he's doing some interesting finishes some different textures uh, so i'm definitely a big fan of what uh, what he's doing with those watches looking forward to seeing what he does in the future and of course this there are a couple of other watches we talked on with things like the uh, vacheron constantine the one with the uh, alternate mode for going into sort of a low power mode and extending the power reserve up to 65 days that was uh, one of the watches that uh, that won here and uh of course the, the calendar and astronomy watch prize went to Hermes for their uh L'Heure de la Lune watch which we uh, we're both big fan of. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was nice to see that being recognized again. Yeah and that was also represented in the only watch auction as well and, and did quite handsomely there. Uh it was actually remarkable how much it, it it went for compared to its retail price. I mean not Tudor level remarkable but <laughs> still Remarkable, uh, nonetheless. Uh, and another thing worth noting on on this particular complication from Hermes, uh, we had, had delved a little bit in, into the mechanics behind it back when we, we first discussed it in our, our SIHH episode. But uh, actually, Marc-Andre, once again, uh, went, went behind the scenes with Hermes and actually has a really great breakdown of exactly how this complication works speaking with the CEO of Crenode, Jean-Francois Mojean, who is actually the brains behind this complication for Hermès. His, his firm was contracted by Hermès to, to actually create this timepiece for them. And uh, it's neat to be able to see uh, not only how it works and it being assembled by their their watchmakers there, but also this, the prototypes, the, the oversized pieces that were made on, on rapid prototyping machines, 3D printers and the like, to actually work out all, all the various mechanics and, and whatnot. And seeing uh, all that is really neat. Some some great insights into to how that uh, 
not only how it works, but also the the process that that went into making it work. Yeah, we had speculated a little bit about how it was working and and some of the technical details that had come out, and and it was I think about a week after we had talked about it that uh, Mark Andre posted that video, and it really is remarkable to see how they designed it and how it works. Uh, it's nice being able to see uh, accurate technical renderings of what's going on and animations and things like that. So if you're at all interested in technical things and how how mechanical objects move this is a fascinating piece to to see how they've uh, how they designed it and the breakdown of it as um i was very impressed with the video that he was able to get from that yeah and then the only other watch that i th- don't think we ever touched on in our previous coverage of of watches this year was the uh, uh Ferdinand uh, Bertoud watch that's there it's a a chronometer that he created and uh this is this is one i don't i'm not really very familiar with his with this brand and i really like the aesthetics of this i like some of the things that he's doing with it particularly the dial design and the dial layout it's, it's not a standard uh, not a traditional dial and it's not balanced in the same way that a traditional dial often is but i think it still works well for what he's trying to accomplish and uh i'm i'm a big fan of what he's done here so i'm i'm really curious to see a little bit more about what's going on with this brand. I, I, I'm not at all familiar with it, so I need to dig into it a bit more. And again, the, this is one of those watches that makes me think about how to design a watch and a dial in particular in different ways. And it gets me thinking outside of sort of the traditional uh, design sort of language of of what people do with watches. So I love seeing this kind of thing. It it's not you know it's not necessarily what I would design for a watch, but I really like the fact that it's not what other people are designing for watches, and that I find just as interesting as uh, as seeing something that I I look at and say oh I wish I had designed that I don't necessarily wish I had designed this, but I'm I wish that I was thinking this way when it came to watch dials, and uh, so I'm I'm really happy that that I'm seeing this sort of thing and and it gives me some ideas for what I want to do next. Now hearing you say say he when referring to Ferdinand Bertu is just throwing my my head for a, a little bit of a a loop. It, it'd be a little bit like uh, someone referring to to Breguet as, as he in in this this modern day and age. Are you familiar with with Bertu at, at all? No, not at okay. all. That's the thing. I know okay. I know nothing about this brand. So I'm I'm saying he is, and I I assumed that I assumed that he was a, an independent watchmaker, but he it doesn't sound like he is. No, it sounds like it is a, a larger brand. So. A resurrected name. Yeah, it's uh, Bertoud was uh, an 18th century watchmaker, born in born in Neuchâtel. Perfect. Um, so uh, yeah, it's a name that's been around for a few centuries. Uh, but uh, it, it is nice to to see uh, what the current ownership uh, has been doing with the brand, and in particular, uh, they're bankrolling the next Naissance d'une Montre project. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to to seeing what what comes of that. Having been quite impressed. By, by the previous Naissance Stunemont projects. Mm-hmm. Well, if he did design this dial, that's really impressive uh, being a, a few hundred years uh, in the grave. So <laughs> it, it is a neat piece. And, and my, like, again, I, I, I do respect what uh, the, the current uh, ownership of the brand is up to, both with the, the brand itself and, and their side projects. So it is uh, true, true watchmaking that, that is, is going on there. Good. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing more of what they're doing and, uh, and I have to dig more into what they have done. Uh, because this is uh, this certainly has uh, piqued my interest. And, uh, apart from uh, 
everything mentioned so far. Uh, the other standouts for me from the from the GPHG were actually it's nice and refreshing to see some uh, not Swiss brands uh, represented there, given all the brands that are also uh, amiss. But uh, both Seiko and uh, Young Upstart Ming watches were both bestowed with some awards at uh, this year's GPHG, which was uh, nice to see. Uh, I was surprised. Uh, well, I shouldn't say surprised. I was impressed to see Ming take home an, an award as well. You're right. It is nice seeing some of these um, these non-Swiss brands actually getting some attention. What do you think of the dial on the Ming? Yeah, this goes back a bit to my comment about the Patek in the uh, the only watch auction. Uh, I'm not I'm not a huge fan of this color. Uh, but I like some of what's going on here. I like the texture that's being created by the pattern that they've uh, probably laser engraved in the background. Uh, I like what they've done there. And again, some of the um, number choices, I like what they've uh, they've done with some of the number choices. Uh, it's a different decision than what a lot of people are, are making on these watches. So copper dial, I'm not a huge fan of uh, color-wise, but I, I do like some of the choices here. And I, I like that there's... You know some different things happening here that uh, that are not traditional Swiss watch dial design. So, yeah, this is uh, it is nice to see that they're uh, they're getting some recognition for this, and probably one of the more reasonably priced watches that's in this uh, this collection as well at uh, twelve hundred and fifty francs. Yeah, and it's powered by a, a workhorse movement. Yeah, at a twenty eight twenty four. The value proposition here really comes from the the case design and, and the dial design and. Uh, it's an interesting story behind Ming watches as well. Ming Thane was uh, just a, a collector who couldn't quite find what he wanted in the, in the price point he wanted. Uh, so challenged by some friends, he actually went out and, and started a watch brand. And uh, actually one of his, his friends too, who um, essentially challenged him to just put his own own name on the, the dial of the watch. Uh, so it's, then it was... Uh, he had skin in the game, so to speak. So it uh, pushed him to get the details right uh, for what what he was was going for. Uh, but these, like the the Jean and, and some of the other watches we we've spoken about, you really have to see in the metal uh, to get a, a sense of of what they're all about. Because there's a, a lot of depth to to Ming's dials, and that that is really where these watches shine. Yeah, you can clearly see that with the the texture that's being created here again that's something that i like the the numbers are are an applied numeral in a way that most people wouldn't do uh, and that gets some texture there the that center dial is uh, is is nicely textured so yeah that's nice and and the shape of the lugs that he's got on this watch are um, are interesting as well they're they're a little bit different than than what you normally see so i'm uh, i'm happy to hear that uh, that this is working well for him and that he's getting the recognition that he deserves for it and uh, as being being somebody else who uh, couldn't really find the watches that he wanted for a price that he could afford, I, I understand uh, getting into making watches for that reason. Well, how are things coming along on your own watch? So there's uh, a few things going on with my my watch, and uh, uh, unfortunately, not a lot of uh, workshop stuff because there's uh, a couple of big changes that are going to be happening soon that uh, don't want to talk about just yet, but uh, hopefully in the next uh, couple of weeks. I'll be able to start talking a little bit about what's going on with uh, with the workshop and the physical making of things. Uh, but when it comes to the dial, which is uh, sort of my, my primary focus right now, uh, I found out today that my pad printer is ready for pickup. So 
I need to arrange to uh, to drive down to Toronto and pick it up and take some training with the uh, folks at Kent Pad Printers and uh, learn a little bit about using it and and mixing up the uh, the inks that I need. And I've been uh, digging more into the design side of the dial. Uh, I finally got myself a Pantone color chart so I could see exactly what the heck these colors look like and uh, get a better better sense of what they were going to look like when uh, when they're printed. Uh, so I, I've got, a, I think, three three colors that um, that are maybe the finalists for the um, the night sky in behind the moon phase. And I'm going to check and see how they look when they're printed as text for the numbers and the, uh, the text and whatnot on the dial itself. So we're going to see. I may be able to pull off using that blue that I found for the night sky for text as well. And if it looks good, then um, then I'm interested in going ahead with it because I think it'll be a nice uh, nice change from just having straight black text on uh, on a dial. Well, I won't press you to to share which Pantone colors you're you're zeroing in on. We'll, we'll let your trade secrets remain trade secrets for the the time being. <laughs> uh, but I, I very much look forward to to hearing how everything plays out with your your introduction to the pad printer and uh, what it's like once you've actually got it up and running in the shop. Yeah, I think it's going to be a little bit before I'm actually using it in in the shop. Um, I don't think it's going to get set up probably until very late this year or very early next year. Um, but I'm uh, I am really looking forward to it. Uh, the the thing I'm most curious about is learning how to to mix the inks accurately. As I said last episode, I'm not too concerned about them being absolutely bang on perfect, but obviously I want to get them close and I want to get them to the point where they're mostly repeatable, so that when I make a color, I can. Uh, I can make it again in the future. Uh, so I'm, I'm looking forward to that. It's probably going to be two weeks before I uh, get a chance to go down and, and pick it up. Uh, I've got to sort of arrange with them. And then, of course, winter has arrived. Uh, we got our, our first big dump of snow last night. Sort of six inches of snow came down. And that makes traveling with a trailer to pick up a, a large item particularly challenging. Uh, so that that's something that I have to consider now is, um, is the weather as well. So... We'll uh, we'll see how it uh, how it plays out in the next few weeks, but um, hopefully I'll have that printer soon. Thanks for listening to Off Hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter at Off Hours. John can be found on Twitter at Under the Loop, and Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Silver underscore hand. And you don't even have to enter the, the GPHG because you've already got it, the silver hand. <laughs> That's right. I don't need a gold hand. I've got a silver one. That better not come back to bite me. <laughs>